Well, good morning, everybody. Um, as has already been said multiple times, um, it's very encouraging um, to see those who are visiting with us this morning. Um, this is a subject where, if you're visiting, this might make you tense up. <laughs> uh, like, what am I in for here? Um, this is the, the second lesson, though, um, on this subject. And I'm aware that this is uh, a topic that many extremes can be taken on it. I'm aware that it's a very sensitive subject. Um, and I've spent a lot of time over the years thinking a lot about this subject um, for myself, not just how this should be applied to others. And this isn't about bemoaning our culture and the world around us either. Um, but I've had to really think very seriously and had to make some changes in my life because of thinking through these things and the principles and how they apply to me. Um, and so I'll do my best to be balanced. Um, that might be a word I use a lot in this lesson is, um, is balance. The, the last lesson, um, we talked about something that I think is, is more fundamental. Uh, we looked mainly at Genesis chapter 3. Um, and I'm turning in my Bible to 1 Timothy uh, 2, not, not Genesis 3 here. Um, but if you look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, it says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So we talked really fundamentally last week that proper clothing first um, is clothing that covers there's really two angles to the subject, right? There's, there's modesty, and I think there's verse 9. Modesty as it's related even to overdressing or over-adorning. Um, but there's another angle of that of, in Genesis chapter 3, we talked about the fact that God gave clothing in Genesis 3 to cover nakedness. And that Adam and Eve created a garment when they were naked and ashamed of it. And their culture, what they decided was an adequate covering for themselves, it was not adequate. They were still naked. And so God created a garment for them, and he clothed them. And so we, we kind of rested on that and talked about that last week, just how important that is, that the first consideration we should have for clothing is, does this cover my nakedness? And um, there are parts of the body that when we look through the Bible, we see a consistency that there are parts of the body that God would consider to be revealing nakedness, and that those are parts of our body that we need to be first consider, considered um, or be considerate about making sure that those are, are clothes. So the first consideration with clothing is, is covering. This lesson, we're going to be looking more at the principles of modesty and self-control. And I want to bring up something I brought up last time related to this subject. Um, I think something that can happen a lot with emotionally sensitive subjects is ex extremes can be taken from being overly strict to almost being ashamed of the subject at hand so much that you either avoid talking about it entirely or when you do talk about it you de-emphasize the sensitive part of it so much where it's almost like you just hardly acknowledge it. Um, I will be talking about kind of modesty as a broader characteristic but I do want to point out in verse 9 as much as modesty is a condition of heart, I do think there are conversations and there are lessons that I've heard where what First Timothy is saying almost becomes forgotten and set aside. Um, 
more in favor of looking at modesty only as an attitude, only as a heart condition. But I want you to notice, likewise, in verse 9, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly is the way the New American Standard uh, words it, and discreetly. So modesty in this passage is a quality of clothing. So although modesty is a condition of heart, and that is critical, we will be talking about that. What 1 Timothy 2 is saying as an instruction is that the clothing itself is what needs to be modest and discreet. So that's what we're going to be mainly focusing on. So again, something that I'll be reiterating just as a brief review is in 1 Timothy 2.9, I think something that's very profound and I think very impactful if we'll think about it is that God cares about how we choose to dress. Um, I'm married and I brought up last week that my wife has an opinion about the clothing that I wear. And because I care about my wife's opinions, I don't wear clothing that she dislikes or clothing that when she looks at it, kind of annoys her when I wear it. And so it's really not a big deal, right? Like I just consider my wife because I care about her. How much more then, God who has sent his son to die for us, God who is the ruling authority of heaven and earth, who loves us to the extent that he would send Jesus to suffer and die, how much more should his opinion matter? Where if he has even a passing wish that we find in his word about our clothing, how much more should we give that the most concentrated, foremost attention when we're considering what we're wearing, right? So again, I want to be balanced in this, but I, I think it is important to acknowledge that 1 Timothy 2.9, God cares about how we choose to dress. So as much as we can view clothing in a diverse amount of ways and have a lot of different opinions about what to wear, really we have to start with what does God think about the clothing that we choose to wear? Now, why? Why does God care about how we choose to dress? Because God himself is modest and discreet and self-controlled. I think we constantly need to be reminded God is not just a being that we acknowledge and like accept somewhere out there and appreciate. So God's not just a being that we acknowledge. He is a person we are striving to become. It's not enough just to do religious things or to go to the place where we do the things. God is a person. Jesus is a person where there's, there's nothing off limits. That I want to think like God. I want to be like God. I want to talk like God. I want to use language that will be pleasing God. And yes, I want to even dress in a way where I know that God will be pleased with what I'm wearing. So there's, there's nothing off limits. Or I, we should want to be as much like God as we possibly can be. Turn to Isaiah 53, um, and we'll just look at the first three verses here. Just want to note that God himself is modest and discreet in in his character. And I think this gives us a heightened and much weightier sense of importance when we're thinking through this subject, right? Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. Um, So this talking about Jesus and ultimately his sacrifice says, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him." 
I think something that we can overlook in this is the things that are, set, are said about the appearance Jesus would have is you look at verse 2, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. You know, we need to concentrate on the character of God. Concentrate. We need to be focused on what makes God who he is and the, and the qualities of his character. And so the way that God presents himself to us and the form that Jesus took in his life is not an accident. You know, Jesus wasn't just born with some random appearance. It's not an accident that Jesus wasn't born as a very attractive, idealized human being in the world's eyes. You know, I remember at UPS when I worked there at Alabama, um, one of my bosses one time talked to me about how he had heard like a sermon that, you know, I guess the preacher had said that Jesus was like a buff guy because he was a carpenter. He was like, ah, it made sense why Jesus drew the crowds because he was like this really muscular, intimidating guy. And that, you know, that gave a good opportunity for conversation because that's, that's definitely not the case, right? <laughs> but God deliberately presents himself in a form that is easy to despise, not attractive to the worldly-minded, challenging to be drawn to. And if you look at verse 2, he has no stately form or majesty. Does God in his true appearance, so I'm thinking like God in heaven, does God have majesty in a stately form? You know, when you look at Revelation chapter 4, or even Revelation chapter 1, where you see an image of Jesus among the candlesticks, the lampstands, what you see is an incredibly glorious form that when it is seen, you fall down like a dead man at the very appearance, right? And so this isn't an accident, and there's a great deal of self-control that God is choosing to present himself in a very discreet and modest manner. And beyond just the appearance that Jesus had in his life, I'm even thinking about the Bible itself, right? Of all the ways that God could appeal to us, teach us, connect with us, he chose a book with words. And not a book that's written like books of the world. I'm reading a book right now where you can tell the author went through great lengths to make sure that what he was writing was very captivating and very exhilarating and was holding your attention. And the Bible's just not written like that. It is written with the full, manifold wisdom and power of God, but modestly. There is a discreetness where the way that God draws our attention is not the way that people in the world draw attention. And I want you to think about why does God present himself in this way? I think it's, a part of it is God simply cannot deny, deny himself. He's, he's true to himself. God is not a man. He's not arrogant. He's not prideful. But what does God accomplish in his modesty? What does he draw attention to? Because of God's modesty, he draws attention to the heart, to the internal, to his works, his love, his, his mind. We think about his redemption. We think about the way that he interacted with people and what that says about who he is and the inner workings of his character. And so again, it's not just that God chose to do this. There, there's a reason because God is seeking to put our attention somewhere specifically, right? And I think even a step further is we need to have admiration for God's modesty. And I think a lot of this idea of what makes modesty so challenging, I think if we're really honest, we really admire the world. We really admired, we admire how the world looks, how the world behaves. And I don't want to go too far into this, but I mean, you spend about five minutes on TikTok, <laughs> 
And you're going to see immodesty galore, not just in dress, but attitude, whatever, right? That's its whole other thing. But I think we just have to have a greater sense of admiration for how God presents himself, the decisions that he makes. And we need to remember as well in imitating God, admiration is the seed of imitation. Like a child looks up to their father and absentmindedly, will imitate characteristics or mannerisms of their parents without them even realizing it. Admiration is what plants the seed of imitation. And so the more we admire and have a genuineness of just great respect and awe for how God has chosen to present himself, it equips us to imitate him but have a context for endurance in doing so. Look up at the end of chapter 52, uh, verse um, 15. Notice it says, thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. I think the idea of kings shutting their mouths on account of him is just that that sense of great amazement. Nobody has ever seen anybody else in a position of authority like God who has the privileges, the power, the, the prosperity, the resources, the great wealth, and all of that, but the need for devoted relationship and the absence of it that for someone to have so much power, so much authority, so many resources, and such a need for devoted relationship, to forsake it all, to go unrecognizable, to forfeit everything that would gain that prideful sense of devotion or gain it by other means, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. It will be just so humbling and unheard of that someone would do such a thing as what Jesus did when he died on the cross. And I want you to consider the consequences God dealt with what God deals with and Jesus dealt with in his ministry because of his modesty. Does God struggle with the fact that people don't pay attention to him or admire him as they ought to or understand him? Did Jesus struggle with people pressuring him to be immodest, to, you know, do this better or get attention some more effective way or teacher, show us a sign from heaven, like what are you waiting for? Or, Come down from the cross and we'll finally believe in you, right? So there were struggles Jesus had in his ministry and interactions and with the Pharisees because his ministry, as as famous as he became, Jesus lived in modesty and with discretion. And there were consequences. It meant Jesus was not appreciated. Jesus was not understood. And so again, it gives us a context where if we choose to be modest, there, there is this reality we have to deal with where we'll struggle with people overlooking, look, overlooking us, maybe not being as attractive as others around us and, and maybe really wanting to be, um, not looking like people in the world look. And, and all of that can be difficult, but when we remember who God is and that our struggles and modesty make us more like God, it gives us a context for faithful endurance. And when you look at Luke 16 here, just kind of as the last component of this point, Um, this statement Jesus makes in Luke 16 has just really challenged me on this idea of admiration and what it is that I admire, what it is I allow to captivate me. Luke 16, 15. um, So he's talking to the Pharisees. You know, obviously these were people who took a great deal of pride in their appearance. They wanted to be impressive. They wanted people to notice them. And he tells the Pharisees, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men 
is detestable in the sight of God. And again, so it's, it's not just that we want to think like God. We want to admire the things that God admires. We want to see the things that God sees. We want to emphasize the things that God emphasizes. And we don't want to be praised for things or recognized for things. If God says, you know, that's just, that's not appropriate. That's not proper for you to be seen in that way or recognized in that way or praised in that way. And so this really helps mature our values as Christians. And we should have this continuously growing sense of uh, godly values. Think about children, right? There's a number of children here. I would hope that as adults, we don't have the same values as a three-year-old child, right? So as we become a Christian, right, these things may be challenging to figure out how to apply, but we need to mature, again, in understanding principles of modesty that as much as it deals with our clothing, that there are transcendent principles of being modest and discreet that continuously have room to mature in our character. So what does it mean to be modest and discreet? So if you'll turn back to 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy, rather, uh, chapter 2, we're going to just spend a little bit of time defining these words. We're going to move into what does it mean to be modest and discreet, and then what does it mean to wear clothing that is modest and discreet. So in verse 9, if anybody has a King James, it says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing with shamefacedness, is what the King James will say. Um, modestly and discreetly. It's this idea of having a sense of shame, and I do like that King James word, shamefacedness, because it kind of conveys the image of blushing. You know, like something happens and you have this visible embarrassment of it. And so that's, that's the idea. It's the idea of having a, a sense of active shame. And it means acting without a hope of being noticed or validated by others. And even beyond that, so it means acting without hope of being noticed or validated by others, but even to be deliberate to avoid such things, being purposeful. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 14. I'm going to use an illustration that Jesus used as an illustration in Luke chapter 14. Um, So Jesus, in verse 7, you have guests who, in a sense, are not being modest. They're fighting for first place. They want to sit in the important position. They want to be noticed. And look at verse 7 through 11, just the way that Jesus illustrates a solution to to challenge what I would call in this situation in immodesty, in the way that things were happening. So verse 7, And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you will proceed, or you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, Jesus taught many things like this, right? Think about even generosity, Matthew chapter chapter 6. You know, don't sound the trumpet, don't let your right hand, this is my right hand, your right hand, know what your left hand is doing. Um, But if you look at verse 10, 
And the person who chose the last place, you notice what he was called by the host? And if you look back in verse 9, do you notice that the other guest who took the first position, do you notice he wasn't called that? In verse 10, the one who took the last, last place is called friend. He was the one who was actually close to the host, and yet he chose the last place. And this wasn't something he had done accidentally. This was, again, a deliberate decision made to choose the very last place. So modesty is the idea of acting and even being deliberate to avoid being noticed or validated by others. And I think, you know, again, when we think about the character of God, who he is and what he's done for us, you know, this carries with it the idea of we don't need the attention or the attraction of men to validate us because God's favor overwhelmingly satisfies that need that we have, right? And so to pursue modesty means to be more invested in God's favor. You know, I think so many of like problems we have in our faith oftentimes come from a need to really have a greater understanding and a greater appreciation for how, how far God's grace can go in our way of thinking, our behavior, our understanding. And so to be modest means I will need to be more invested in God's favor. It's not just about following someone's arbitrary rules or convictions that they've set up, but it's about seeking to glorify and please God. And again, the challenge is that, yes, I will face challenges in being modest. I think especially women, as the instruction is mainly focused, women will, I think, particularly struggle with difficulties in trying to figure this out very thoughtfully. But what this does is it pushes us to be more invested in God's favor rather than trying to impress others. The idea of being discreet is to hold back and to have self-control or restraint. Your translation may even just use the word self-control, self-restraint. Um, you may be able to even think of times where like, maybe you were told in your life, hey, have some discretion, right? Like, hold back a little bit here, you know? Like, be mindful of what you're doing and um, where you are and the people you're around. And this means choosing not to act on our full potential when we have the opportunity. I'm going to use an illustration here that, like, is, um, it's debatable, right? So take it with a grain of salt, but have you ever been playing a game with someone uh, and the person that you're playing, like, you're winning, they're getting emotional, they're getting really upset, and you have the temptation to, like, I'm just going to let you win. <laughs> and they don't know it, right? And the reason they're, like, you know, I don't know if that's entirely honest to do that, by the way. So maybe don't do that, you know, maybe just win. But anyway, it's an idea of like, I could win this game, but because of how I see it's impacting you, I'm going to hold back for your sake, right? So there, there's times where we recognize like acting on my full ability is really not, not what's best or in the best interest of this other person right now, right? That maybe for me to hold back a little bit is more appropriate, especially in the context of who's around me and the effect that I'm having on other people around me. And it means that we make decisions, as, again, balance, right, wisdom. But it does mean we need to think about making decisions where my intentions are not trying to look impressive to others. Like, I'm not trying to gain people's attention or favor. And again, even being deliberate and being okay with blending in and falling into the background. And I want you to think again about Jesus and the Pharisees. 
between Jesus and the Pharisees, who is concerned about looking impressive? Who went through the lengths to make sure people noticed them and were impressed by them and would follow them because, wow, just look at the guy, right? Pharisees would lengthen these like scripture boxes on their foreheads. They'd make the ribbons, the blue tassels on the robes like super, super long. They'd say these super long prayers so everybody knows how pious they are. You know, but Jesus, again, like Isaiah 53, as simply one example, would be deliberate about not looking impressive. And you know what's interesting? Is oftentimes Jesus, when he was getting more and more popular, would go farther and farther away from the crowds. And as crowds were gaining more and more momentum, he would ramp up how challenging his teaching was, even to seemingly push people away. When Jesus would perform miracles, people were amazed. He would oftentimes challenge people to think more seriously about the purpose of his life when they were, you know, like, wow, what Jesus is doing is amazing. He was never impressed by his miracles, never overcome by the excitement of the crowds. Jesus made decisions to avoid being impressive. Again, I realize how do we apply that principle and being careful to not be extreme, I realize that. But that's what it means to be discreet in this context, right? So finally, some things with clothing. And so I think maybe to summarize what we're going to go through here, really simply, is we're, we're, we're talking about clothing and adornment, right? So, I mean, you look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 again, um, where he's not just talking about the clothing that we wear, but the adornment that we put on um, as well. So 1 Timothy 2, 9 not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works. This is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So clothing, makeup, jewelry, you know, we're, we're, we're doing everything to show consideration and respect first to God, and then also to my environment and those around me. And my hope is in bringing these things up that there will be, again, the hope is a balance where we're not just becoming overwhelmed with paranoia of, you know, feeling like they're just, it's impossible to, you know, please everybody. And, and, and that's obviously, we're trying to be careful to avoid extremes. But it means having self-control and restraint with my choice of adornment and clothing. It might mean that there will be clothing that it would be comfortable, it would be really pretty, it would look really nice. But to be discreet implies saying no sometimes. So there may be clothes that I want, that even if I try it on, it's like, oh, this looks so nice, but it reveals too much. Maybe it's a little too tight. It's a little too eye-catching. Having self-control implies there will be clothing that I say no to. And I guess like that might be something to reflect on personally. Like, Have you ever done that? Actually had clothing where you've had to say no. You've tried something on or you've seen something that you denied yourself because you knew it wouldn't be glorifying to God, that you would get that. You know, but this also implies that maybe for weather, it's very warm in Savannah in the summertime. And I don't doubt it's very comfortable to wear nearly nothing in the summer heat. But is that proper? Is that covering nakedness? Is it glorifying to God, right? So we need, we need to be honest and just very thoughtful and be willing to have self-control. It means avoiding clothing or adornment, and this, this applies to men and women, that we need to be careful with clothing that draws inappropriate attention or attraction to ourselves. 
So I've gone back and forth with this illustration um, that I, I hope helps. But when I was working these things out kind of for the first time about 10 years ago, you know, trying to think through like modesty and, you know, I, I was at a place for a little bit where um, my thinking was I need to dress my best for worship, right? I need to dress my best for worship. And my thinking was, you know, I, I've heard that from brethren and, you know, after studying, I was convinced I need to dress my best for worship. Well, in my thinking was, okay, if I'm going to dress my best for worship for God, then, I mean, I've got vests, I've got, you know, suit jackets and um, what are those pocket squares, chains for my, you know, tie. And I would think like, you know, I mean, Wednesday isn't all that much different from Sunday. We just don't take the Lord's Supper. And so I'm worshiping on Wednesday with the brethren. We're singing songs, praying together. There's an exhortation and a study. So on Sunday, I was wearing, you know, full, the best clothes I possibly had, vest, tie, chain, pocket square. I mean, I, in my mind, I'm dressing my best. And then on Wednesdays, I would make sure that I had enough time to go back home, put on all of that clothes, and go to the assembly. So what conversations do you think I was exclusively having with others? Every conversation... <laughs> was about how nice I looked. Every single conversation for a long time. And eventually, it made me extremely uncomfortable. It's like, literally, the only thing anyone is talking to me about is how nice I look. And then I noticed on Wednesdays, I was dressed eons nicer than everybody else. And it made me stick out like a sore thumb, right? And so the conclusion that I came to is I want to be moderate, right? I don't want to dress in a way that is making some kind of big statement above anybody else. I don't want to dress down so much that, you know, in the same way I'm making some statements in that way, but just being moderate, being respectful, right? Being respectful for, you know, the environment, the people I'm around, the setting I'm in. And so again, this avoiding extremes, we need to be mindful, thoughtful, moderate, and very respectful of convictions people come to, right? Like nobody told me I was wrong, um, for wearing that kind of clothing. Um, people complimented it a lot, but nobody said it was wrong. And in the same way, if, if, if someone becomes convinced that that is what they should do, you know, then, then fine. It's important we form convictions and are thoughtful. But just that on the idea, of we, we need to pay attention on the kind of impact our clothing choices are having on those around us, right? We're, we're not trying to stick out. We're not trying to look better than everybody else. We shouldn't want to have every conversation be about our clothing choices and how good we look. Um, but really, interestingly in God's word, in the New Testament, God is always de-emphasizing, de-emphasizing, very nice, very extravagant apparel. And he's always emphasizing moderation, right? And it means considering culture and context, social context. So we talked about last week, nakedness is not like that. You know, if I'm at the beach or participating in a sporting event, that doesn't change God's standard of nakedness by any means. Modesty is a little bit different, right? Um, a couple examples of that. From time to time, I see pictures of preachers in places like Africa where they will be wearing a three-piece suit and tie, slacks, and very nice dress shoes, and they're reading the Bible with people on the dirt under a tree who are dressed nothing like them, who are wearing very poor clothing and think, what impression are they giving of how a Christian ought to dress them, right? And to me, that's, that's immodesty. They're, they're dressed, they're fully, they're fully clothed, 
but the way that they're presenting themselves is it's very inappropriate for the culture, right, and social context. Another example of this is when I was living in Alabama, I went to um, a sacred selection fundraiser with the Strickland family. Some of the brethren here know the Stricklands. Um, sacred selections, they do adoptions, they do fundraisers for adoptions. So I was kind of just learning about sacred selections and the Strickland family, they were close to me, they invited me to go. I didn't really know what it was. They probably said it was a formal dinner, but like in the summertime, I tend to wear basketball shorts and an athletic shirt. So they picked me up and I'm wearing, you know, just basketball shorts and athletic shirt and they didn't say anything. And so we get in the car and we go to the event and it's in an extremely ritzy place and everybody in there is dressed extremely nice and, and I, looked, I looked ridiculous. Like, I felt extremely uncomfortable. I'm sure my face was red the entire time. I'm just, I'm really dense. I'm sure they brought it up, but I was traumatized. And everybody there, I think just about everybody, is a Christian. Nobody said anything. Nobody's like, what are you wearing? What are you doing? Mainly people laughed. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you do look kind of silly, huh? But, like, nobody, like, told me to change or anything like that. But with the idea of being, sh- being shame-faced, you know, we should be able to recognize, like, how I'm dressed is not appropriate. You know, like, the, the point of modesty, again, is blending in. And, and, and again, it's not blending in to the point where we're revealing nakedness because, you know, you blend in the world and that's where you're going to go. But it's just, again, reasonableness, wisdom, honesty, self-reflection, and being respectful, right? That's really the principle, is just here are various ways where we can simply be mindful and respectful respectful with the way we dress. And it does mean being thoughtful of the common temptations others face. This is in conversations I've been a part of or seen or heard. This is a challenging one, right? So I want to I say initially here, no matter how a man or a woman dresses, you know, you don't have the final say in what someone does with temptation. You can cover yourself completely and if somebody is bent on lusting they're going to do that and that's not your fault right but we need to recognize that we do need to be thoughtful about common temptations others face look at this principle in first corinthians chapter eight and i think again this just relates to being reasonable and spiritually minded right Um, i've seen too many conversations where somebody is very angry and they make that very clear. And they say, well, I can't control what anybody you know, is going to do with their lust. And I just gave up. And I'm going to dress how I want. It's like, whoa. Whoa, okay. Let's calm down. And let's, let's think the way that God encourages us to think. So 1 Corinthians 8. This is on the issue of food. And on the issue of food and eating in the context of an idol feast and worshiping an idol. And the Corinthians thinking, well, it's just food. You know, idols aren't really real. There's only one God. Verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And look at verse 11. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So again, as I keep saying, balance and wisdom, right? We want to avoid making extra rules that the Bible doesn't make, but we also want to be thoughtful 
and clear, and especially clear with danger and love, right? And so is what Paul, is what he, is what Paul is saying here unreasonable? I think if we're worldly-minded, it is. Verse 13, food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again? Like, whoa, that is utterly extreme, and without context, that just seems horribly unreasonable. Right? Who would do such a thing? But not if we're thinking in the context of God's character and Christ, right? And so although Paul will get into different semantics, details of the issue at hand, he goes through chapter 10, ultimately getting to the point of participating in idolatry is wrong, period. (laughs) And you should flee from idolatry, period. But before he gets there, he says, you have failed to consider how this is affecting your brethren. And that should be the first consideration you make that stops you from doing this and participating in this, right? So we need to be thoughtful of common temptations others face and be humble about it. You know, and again, recognizing I can't ultimately control where people go in their heart, but I can certainly have an impact. Love demands respecting that impact, right? And finally, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, because I think this is where 1 Timothy 2 goes in verse 10, in being able to enforce and even um, make more beautiful the truth of claiming to godliness, to live for godliness. But 1 Peter 3, I think, gives another angle on this that I think is is very beautiful, very important. Um, So 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4, and talking about wives here, so in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they reserve your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Look, here's the challenging thing, right? If we choose, men and women, but again, I think women will struggle more with this, if we choose to live in modesty and discretion, not many people are going to notice that or value that. That's, that's just the hard reality of it, right? But who is going to notice that? Look at verse 4 again. It's precious in the sight of God. It pushes us to be more rooted in God's favor and what he values. What matters more than what's precious in the sight of God, right? The right people will notice a life of modesty, dress that reflects modesty and discretion. The right people who are godly-minded will notice and value those things. So the most important people will see it, and it emphasizes the value of internal beauty and godly behavior, right? Modesty, discretion, choosing to dress in these ways. A person, obviously they can dress with modesty, but actually have a very immodest mentality or way they behave. Like, I get that, right? But ultimately, we're trying to be like God here, where just like God in how he presents himself, draws attention to the internal, emphasizes the importance of the heart, recognizes the sensitivities of the heart, but also emphasizing godly behavior and the importance of godly behavior not being rooted in pride or seeking prideful recognition, 
modesty heightens the emphasis and the value of inter- internal beauty and godly behavior. Behavior. To someone who's spiritually minded, who loves God, that is the most critical thing. What glorifies God? What fulfills his purpose? Not mine, not the culture around me. It's not about what looks right or looks the best to me. What brings God glory? I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 10 as one final statement um, on this lesson. 1 Corinthians 10 31 through 33, kind of as a summary statement of this whole like giving careful consideration to how I'm affecting those around me, Paul says some very comprehensive, all-inclusive things on this subject. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that, we may be, that they may be saved. And the lesson is yours. May God help us, give us strength and wisdom to dress, act, think in a way that conforms us to his image in modesty and discretion. If there's any uh, who are here who are convicted by the lesson or have anything heavy that relates to your relationship with God that you need to confess or bring forward for the support of the church, Now is an appropriate time as we stand and sing the invitation song.